morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. I have no idea what your week has been like. Maybe it's been a great week. Maybe it's been a hard week. I know it's been a hard week for our family. But I know that this passage in Philippians 1 is exactly the one that we needed. And I suspect it may be the one that you need also. So let me pray, and then let's get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together. In particular, I thank you for the passage that we're about to look at here in Philippians 1. Where it's easy in the midst of the brokenness of this world to become discouraged, to feel even despair. And yet your word is like a balm for our soul. And I pray this morning that it would minister to us greatly. Wherever we are in our affliction, wherever we are, in our joy, wherever we are in life's circumstances, we pray that your word would minister to us greatly this morning. We have a confidence that every time we open the Bible, we are hearing directly from you. Because we know that all scripture is breathed out by you and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning through your word, that you would rebuke us where necessary, that you would train us in righteousness. Oh Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So when I was younger, I was the type of kid that would study atlases on long road trips. If I'm honest, I sometimes still do. I know I'm, I'm the life of the party for sure. But I love learning facts about each of the states in the United States, whether it's state capitals or state nicknames, largest states by size and population, smallest states by size and population, highest elevation point in the state, you name it, I wanted to know it. And the more obscure the fact, the better. Anybody can learn the state capitals, but if you know the state bird of Arizona, the cactus wren, or the state flower of Mississippi, the magnolia, that is far more notable. And if you know the state motto of any state, that's really impressive. Because on the obscurity scale, state mottos have to be near the top of the list. And perhaps that's for good reason, because some state mottos are kind of strange. By definition, a motto is a short sentence or phrase that is chosen to encapsulate the beliefs or ideals guiding an individual, family, institution, or in this case, a state. So theoretically, a state motto should capture the values and beliefs of that state. And to be sure, some state mottos try to do that. The state motto of the great state of Iowa, our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain, that is clearly trying to encapsulate some beliefs and values. Even Nebraska's motto, equality before the law, although short and to the point, is clearly trying to capture value. But for every Iowa or Nebraska, there are many states that seem to have misunderstood the definition of a motto. Take Michigan, for example. The state motto of Michigan is, and I quote here, if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. That seems more like a tourist brochure description than it does a phrase that encapsulates the values of the state. But to be fair to Michigan, other state mottos are even stranger. Washington's motto, buy and buy, as in buy. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, let alone capture any values. And then there's Maryland's motto, which is just bizarre and has been the subject of great controversy over the years. The motto is actually an Italian phrase and was originally translated as, and hear me, I'm not making this up, this is a quote, do not shoot the messenger. The original, original translation of their motto was, men do things, women talk about things. I'm telling you, don't direct your angry letters to me, send them to the state senator of Maryland if you want to. In 1979, it was retranslated to say, manly deeds, womanly words, which as you might imagine is still controversial. In light of that motto and many others, I think we understand maybe why state mottos are so obscure. Perhaps they need to be, because most of them are strange and most of them do not fit the definition of a motto. 
Now, having said all that, as you might imagine, my goal this morning is not to spend the duration of our time together this morning dissecting state mottos. In fact, the only reason I bring up mottos at all is because our passage today got me thinking about mottos in general. Again, a motto by definition is a short sentence or phrase that is chosen to encapsulate the beliefs or ideals that guide a person, a family, or an institution. Given that definition, if you were looking for a motto for the Christian life, a short phrase that would encapsulate the values and beliefs that we should be about, I think you would probably want to start in our passage today. Philippians 1.21 contains one of the most famous phrases in all the New Testament. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a phrase that rolls off the tongue, no doubt, but it's also a phrase that I think encapsulates what it means to be a follower of Christ. In other words, what I'm saying is, this could be the motto of the Christian life. In fact, my prayer this morning is that the words of Philippians 1.21 would be a phrase that describes and encapsulates everything we're trying to do as Christians. My hope is that like Paul, we could steadfastly and wholeheartedly and with utmost sincerity say without hesitation, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But to get to the place where we actually say that's our motto, I think we need to understand what the motto means. I think we need to understand more accurately what the verse means. And to do that, I think we need to understand the passage. So I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we read here Philippians 1, 18 through 26. Again, in the middle, we'll find this famous phrase, but the whole passage is very helpful. Philippians 1, 18 through 26, the words will be on the screen here shortly, or you can listen as I read. You can look along in your own Bibles. I would remind you this is the word of God. So we'll start in the latter half of verse 18 here. It says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, That means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It's the word of God. You may be seated. I don't think there's any doubt that Philippians 1.21 is the linchpin of this passage. And that's where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning. But before we dive into the intricacies of that particular verse, I think it's important that we understand the context around it, and in particular the context leading up to it. So let's look beginning here in the latter half of verse 18 and into verse 19. Let's start there. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, you may remember last week, at the end of last week's passage, Paul remarked that as long as Christ was being proclaimed, he would rejoice. Paul was imprisoned, and yet he was rejoicing because the gospel was still advancing. He was being afflicted by fellow Christians, and yet he was rejoicing because the gospel was advancing. And so that theme of rejoicing now continues in our passage today. In the latter half of verse 18 and in verse 19, Paul asserts that he will continue to rejoice For he knows that through the prayers of the Philippians and through the help of the Holy Spirit, his circumstances, again, I think meaning his imprisonment, will turn out for his deliverance. Now the question in verse 19 is, what does Paul mean by his deliverance? Is he referring to the idea that he would be delivered from imprisonment or is he talking about something else? I think it's possible he could be talking about being delivered from imprisonment. 
Later in the passage, Paul will make it clear he expects to be released. So it's possible, that's what he's referring to here in verse 19. But given the immediate context in which he acknowledges in verse 20 that he might die, presumably from execution, it seems unlikely that he's talking about a deliverance from prison in verse 19. Instead, I think he's talking about deliverance in the sense that he will be ultimately vindicated before God. In 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul gets at a similar idea when he says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So in both that passage in 2 Timothy 4 and in our passage today, I don't think Paul is, being talk, is talking about being delivered from prison. He's talking about ultimate deliverance or ultimate rescue in the sense that God will bring him safely into the kingdom and he will stand before God vindicated because of his trust in Jesus Christ. Now, as a bit of a side note here, I think it's worth noting that Paul attributes his perseverance and his future deliverance to two things. The prayers of other believers and the help of the Holy Spirit. I think that's worth noting because I don't think we think that way. We tend to downplay the importance of the prayers of others, and we tend to downplay the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we often, in our American culture, emphasize our own willpower or our own grit, our own mental strength as the means by which we'll persevere in the faith. But obviously, Paul did not hold that same point of view. It's clearly Paul's perspective that the prayers of other believers and the help of the Holy Spirit, this is how we persevere. So again, I know I'm on a bit of a rabbit trail here, but I think it's a trail that's worth taking for a second. Church, hear this. We cannot persevere on our own. We need the prayers of other believers, and we should not be ashamed to ask for them. We also need the help of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, that rabbit trail aside, the point is that through the prayers of the people and through the help of the Holy Spirit, Paul expects that he will be delivered in the sense that he will be brought safely to the kingdom and vindicated before the Lord. I think that interpretation of deliverance, meaning vindication, before God is confirmed by what Paul says in verse 20. It says this, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul's eager expectation and his hope is that he will not be ashamed, but rather with full courage, Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And it's that last phrase, by life or death, that then launches Paul into the linchpin of the entire passage, Philippians 1.21. Again, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, verse 21 For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I do think this is one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. I also think it's one that could serve as a motto for the Christian life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is what it encapsulates to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now the challenge this morning is this, that we can hear Philippians 1.21 and not really know what it means. And the greater challenge is that we can hear Philippians 1.21 and not really believe what it says and live accordingly. And so in light of those challenges, in the rest of our time together this morning, I simply want to ask two questions related to this passage. One, what does it mean? What does Philippians 1.21 mean? I, I don't want us to leave here not understanding what Paul says when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. But the second important follow-up question is, do you really believe Philippians 1.21 and are you willing to live accordingly? So let's start with the first question here. What does Philippians 1.21 mean? In Philippians 1.21, there are two key phrases. To live as Christ, that's one. To die as gain, that's the second. And understand what the passage means and understand what that verse means. I think we need to understand what both of those phrases mean. 
So let's start by considering the first. To live is Christ. What does Paul mean when he says to live is Christ? I think the rest of the passage actually helps us to answer that question. So verses 22 to 26. I think Paul helps us to understand what he means by saying what he does. Verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So in verses 22 to 26, Paul's wrestling with this idea of what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. He even wonders aloud at one point, would it be better to die and be with Christ or would it be better to stay? And in that process of wrestling with this living or dying, I think Paul actually helps us understand what he means when he says to live is Christ. Because in the rest of the passage, he kind of spells out for us or lays out for us, this is what it looks like for him to live as Christ. So in light of what we read in verses 22 to 26, I think we can conclude that to live as Christ entails at least three things. First, to live as Christ means first and foremost, Christ is our greatest passion. When we say to live as Christ, that's the place we start, that Christ is our greatest passion. Back in verse 20, Paul talked about his eager expectation and hope that Christ would be honored in his body, whether by life or death. In verse 26, Paul talks about the Philippians having ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So this phrase, to live as Christ, that we find in verse 21, is bookended on the front and back side by the idea of living for the glory and honor of Jesus. In other words, to live as Christ means that our greatest passion is to live for the honor and glory of Jesus. He is our all-consuming desire. And because he's our all-consuming passion, we want others to know about him as well. Which brings us to the second component of what Paul means when he says to live as Christ. The first is that we live most passionately for Christ. The second is that we also live for the advancement of the good news about Christ. Look at verses 21 and 22 here. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So what's the fruitful labor that Paul's talking about? Well, as the rest of the passage makes clear, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ advancing to lost people, but it's also believers coming to experience Jesus in a greater way experiencing more joy, which brings us to the third and related component of what Paul means when he says to live as Christ. To live as Christ means that we're living for others in a way that helps them experience joy in Jesus. Verses 24 to 26, Paul says this, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So when Paul thinks about the Christian life, it's obvious he doesn't just think about his own pursuit of Jesus or his own joy, but he thinks about others progressing in the faith and others finding joy in Jesus too. To that point, as Paul is wrestling with this hypothetical dilemma of whether he would rather live or die, it's just a hypothetical dilemma, by the way, he doesn't actually have a choice, but as he wrestles with this hypothetical dilemma, what makes him want to stay and what convinces him that he will stay is he has a desire to help the Philippians grow in their faith. In fact, he expects that he will be released from prison precisely because he senses this is their need. By the way, historical evidence would indicate that Paul was right, that when he sensed he would be released, he eventually was, and he would later on spend time with the Philippians. 
But what's interesting about all of that is that for Paul, to live as Christ meant more than just living for Christ himself. Sometimes when we talk about living for Christ, we make it sound like it's a solo endeavor. But clearly, that's not the way Paul thought when he thought about what it means to live as Christ. It meant also helping others to come to know Jesus. It meant also helping others to progress in their faith and experiencing more joy in Christ. So what does it mean when we say to live as Christ? Well, we'd say first and foremost, it means Christ is our greatest passion. It means also living for the advancement of the good news about Christ. And it means living for others in a way that helps them to experience more joy in Jesus. Or maybe to say it in summary fashion, to live as Christ means that Christ is the focal point of everything we do, whether in our own life or in our interactions with others. So that's the first phrase in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ. The second is probably a bit more straightforward, to die as gain. Now the key to understanding why Paul says that is found in verse 23. Verse 23, Paul says this, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul desires to depart and be with Christ, he says, because that would be far better. It's far better to live with Christ in glory than it is to live in this broken world apart from him. Now, thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, God is omnipresent, and that helps us to navigate the difficulties of this world. But to be with Christ and to be done with this broken world is indeed a far, far better thing. I think that's what Paul means when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. Again, when he says to live as Christ, it means that Christ is first and foremost our greatest passion. It means living for the advancement of the gospel. It means helping others find joy in Jesus. To die as gain means it's better by far to depart and be with Christ. But having established what the verse means, here's the all-important second question. Do you actually believe what Paul's saying? And are you willing to live accordingly? There is a vast difference between understanding something intellectually as opposed to actually believing it and living accordingly. For example, how many of us are aware that being on our phone too much is probably not good for us? Well, probably all of us. We know being on our phone too much, not good for us, and yet we still can't put, our, we still can't put down our phones. How many teenagers are aware that social media is a proven poison for mental health? In fact, study after study has shown this. And yet, many teenagers cannot pull themselves away from Instagram or TikTok. How many of us know that we should eat healthier, but yet ice cream and chips taste so good? Just can't stop ourselves. To understand something, to be true intellectually, that's one thing. But to actually believe it and then live accordingly, that's an entirely different thing. And that's where Philippians 1.21 starts to get really challenging. To understand the meaning of Philippians 1.21 is not all that hard. Maybe we have to figure out what does he mean when he says to live as Christ. But in general, the first time you hear it, you probably know what he means. But to actually believe that to the core of who we are, and then to actually live like we believe that, well, that's a completely different story. Here's the thing. I think most of us, at least those of us who claim to be Christians, would intellectually agree with what Paul's saying in Philippians 1.21. We would say, oh yeah, to live as Christ, to die again. Yep, agreed. But do we actually believe that? Do we actually live like we believe that? To assess the answer to those questions, perhaps it's helpful to again break up the two phrases and just address each of them one at a time. So let's start with the first one. Do you actually believe that to live is Christ 
and therefore you live accordingly. Here's the honest truth. I think most of us are living under the philosophy that to live is Christ plus other things. So we live for Jesus plus our family and our jobs and our kids' activities, our success, money, material possessions, vacations, life experiences, on and on. And there's nothing wrong with some of those things. In fact, some of them are really good. But the problem over time is that those plus things begin to crowd out Jesus. And so instead of living with the mentality to live as Christ, period, we start to functionally live as to live as family, or to live as my job, or to live as about the kids, or to live as about my success, or to live as about experiencing things. But the problem is when we start living with those mentalities, or we start living that way, those things never satisfy, at least not ultimately. One of the striking things about the book of Philippians is Paul's constant joy in the face of serious obstacles. He's imprisoned, and yet he rejoices. He's afflicted by church members. He rejoices. He faces potential execution. He rejoices. That is only possible if you are actually living like you believe to live is Christ. Remember last week, Paul rejoices even though he's imprisoned and even though he's being afflicted by church members, because for him, the advancement of the gospel is more important than his own comfort. In other words, he was living like he actually believed that to live as Christ is true. Hear this. If you're living for family or wealth or success or the approval of others, imprisonment and trials are going to be a real hindrance. But if you're living for Jesus, then there's no trial or difficulty that can separate you from the love of Christ. And there's no trial or difficulty that can separate you from the joy that is possible when you're living in Jesus. The most joyful people I know are not the people who have the most money or go on the most vacations or live in the nicest houses. It's those who live with the mentality to live is Christ. When I think of people who live with this mentality, I think of people like my friend Che On. Che was one of the elders I served with at New Hope Fellowship in Terrytown, New York. And to be sure, Che had a lot of worldly things going for him. He's incredibly intelligent. He had a doctorate in some really complicated degree from MIT. He was a high-ranking executive at a Fortune 500 company. But Che wasn't passionate about any of those things. In fact, he seldom, if ever, talked about them. The only reason I knew about his job or his accomplishments is because other people told me. It wasn't because he told me. His greatest passion, and it was obvious from the moment I first met him, his greatest passion was Jesus. He regularly met with young guys to disciple them. He and his wife consistently opened up their homes to encourage other people in Christ. He shared Christ with lost people. And he prioritized the bride of Christ, which is the church. Che traveled all over the world for his job, but he seldom missed an elder meeting because he would always find some way to rearrange his schedule so he could call into the meeting. There were many times where he would be over in Europe or in Asia, and it would be the middle of the night, and yet he would get up because he didn't want to miss an elder meeting because he loved the church. A few years after we left, he retired from his high-ranking job just so he could spend more time investing in the church on a volunteer basis. When I think of someone who lived with the Philippians 1 mentality, I think of Che. Christ was undoubtedly his greatest passion. He cared about lost people coming to know Jesus. He intentionally invested in others so they could experience joy in Jesus. Not coincidentally... He was also one of the most joyful people I know. I never saw Che get angry or lose his cool or get discouraged. And I'm not saying those things never happened. I'm sure they did at times. And especially when he was younger and not as spiritually mature, they probably did more. 
But I'm just telling you, when you met Che, his joy was real and it was contagious. And I share that with you to say this. I think sometimes when we talk about living for Christ, we sometimes try to put a guilt trip on people. You should live for Jesus. You should prioritize Jesus over everything. You should share Christ with lost people. But I think that's the wrong approach. And the better approach is to simply point out, living for Jesus brings joy. It brings joy. Listen, some of you in this room right now feel unsatisfied with the direction of your life. Maybe you have the money, maybe you have the things, maybe you have the beautiful family, but deep down, if you're honest, you feel empty. And if that's you, let me encourage you this morning, take Philippians 1.21 seriously. Reorient your life to reflect the mentality to live is Christ. Primarily, that means making Christ your greatest passion and priority, but it also means seeking to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost people, and it also means helping other Christians experience more joy in Jesus. I'm convinced that part of the reason why we lack joy in our lives is because we're not really living with a Philippians 121 mentality. Think about it this way. In the past month, how many times have you shared the gospel with a lost person? In the past month, how many times have you met with a fellow believer for the expressed purpose of helping them find more joy in Jesus? In the last month, how many times have you said no to something good because you wanted to prioritize something better, Jesus? In the American church, we become masters at living out the mentality to live as Christ plus other things. But for the sake of our joy, let's return to the original equation. To live is Christ. That's the end. Except it's not quite the end, is it? Because there's another phrase that comes right after it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Which brings us to the second question. Do you really believe that to die is gain? And are you living accordingly? Again, here's where we have to be honest. Most of us, in theory, would agree that to die is gain. After all, the Bible says so. But in reality, I'm not sure how many of us are convinced it's true. And I wonder if one of the reasons why that's the case is because we have a faulty view of what heaven is going to be like. A long time ago, when our kids were really young, we were at an amusement park. And one of our kids, he was probably about four years old at the time, went on a frog ride. Now, I suppose there are lots of frog rides in amusement parks, but this particular frog ride would launch you about 15 feet up in the air, and then you'd bounce a little bit, and you'd come down, and then you'd get launched in the air again, and on and on you go. And the whole time as this was happening, our four-year-old seemed like he was having a wonderful time. But I'll never forget what he said when he came off the ride. He looked at Tony and I, and he said, did I just go to heaven? Now, I understand his logic, right? In his mind, heaven is up there. And so since he went up 15 feet, in his mind, he must have been in heaven. Now, obviously, that's not good theology, which is why we rebuked him on the spot. No, just kidding. <laughs> we did not rebuke him. He was four years old. We laughed it off, of course. And then we tried to have a discussion with him about what heaven is actually like. It's not up in the sky, per se. It's, it's with Jesus. And eventually, when Christ returns, the new heavens and earth will be here. Now, I don't think that explanation got a lot of traction in his four-year-old mind. Because an hour later, we were on the big ski lift chairs that went over the amusement park, and he turned to me and said, oh, I get it. This is heaven. Because in his mind, it was so much higher than the frog ride. Obviously, he still had a ways to go in his theology. But here's the thing. I think there are a lot of adults whose theology about heaven is not that much better than his four-year-old theology. Now, granted, most adults probably don't think you get to heaven by going on a frog ride. But there are many adults who are convinced that heaven is sitting on a cloud playing a harp, attending an internally long church service. 
it's no wonder they don't want to go to heaven. If that was heaven, I wouldn't want to go either. But thankfully, that's not the biblical portrait of heaven. Now, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about what heaven will be like, but what it does say is really encouraging. It's going to be awesome. In fact, just to wet your whistle here a little bit, I'm going to read to you from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7. I just want you to hear the descriptions that we have in Scripture of what heaven will be like. So this is a starting place, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7. You can turn there if you want. You can just listen. This is really encouraging to hear what the new heavens and new earth will be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now listen, I don't know what heaven will be like exactly, but I know this, it won't be boring, and we won't be playing harps all day. And the best part is, we'll be with him. In fact, this is what Paul is getting at in verse 23. He says this back in Philippians 1, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now in verse 23, I think Paul is alluding here to the moment that he dies. When we die, those of us who are in Christ, and only those of us who are in Christ, will immediately go into the presence of the Lord and experience his joy. But it's not until Christ returns that we'll have our resurrected bodies, our resurrected bodies, and, and be able to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. So when we die, we're immediately in his presence, and it'll be amazing, but we're still waiting his glorious second coming. But even still, encouragement is that when we do die, we're immediately with him. Hear this. If you have a picture of heaven in your mind, and that picture does not include being with God, then your picture is inaccurate. Because the best part of heaven is being with him. And that's something we can enjoy immediately after our death, even before Christ returns. I think that's the reason why Paul says what he does here in Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. Because we get to be with him. Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, the best thing that could happen to a Christian is that they would die. And then he went on to say, cheer up. Today could be your last day on earth. Now to be sure, and hear me clearly, we should not speed along the process of dying. And while we're here, we should live for Jesus. That's kind of the point of this passage. But nevertheless, to die is gain. Church, are you living like that's true? Are you living with one eye always on eternity? Do you long for the day when you will be with Jesus? Listen, I don't know that Christians actually need a life motto, but if you were looking for one, I would suggest Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Those are words that are worth remembering. They're words that are worth studying, but most importantly, they are words worth living by. So church, let me encourage you this morning and let me plead with you this morning. Let's live 
as if we believe this is actually true. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great and precious reminder here from Philippians 1.21, a word that I know I desperately need this week, and I suspect many in this room need it also. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Help us to live as if we believe that's actually true. Help us to live accordingly. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So one of the things we like to do at Free Money Free is we like to just spend time praying.